Hello, my name is Philip Meerton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution, to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now, I'm excited about today's show because we're going to be taking an excursion into, Peru, into Peruvian shamanic wisdom from one of its masters, Don Oscar Miro Quesada. He is the visionary founder of the Heart of the Healer Foundation and originator of the Pachacuti Mesa Cross-Cultural Shamanism and co-author of the book Lessons in Courage, Peruvian Shamanic Wisdom for Everyday Life. He's been a popular faculty member at a number of U.S. colleges and universities, and his works and programs have been featured on CNN, Univision, A&E, and the Discovery Channel. Now, one thing we know in the Western world is that we tend to think that the Western mindset is the only one, and probably people who are not in the West believe that this is an arrogant standpoint. We know, for example, that 70% of the American people believe in some form of the paranormal. Most people believe in an afterlife. Nine in 10 people believe in God. Over 50% of people believe in some form of alternative medicine. And these statistics just scratch the surface. At the same time, the Western world tells us that we are machines in a robotic kind of society and we probably know in our hearts that this cannot be right. We also know that the planet is sick on a lot of levels. For example, we know that there's rampant poverty. There's 20 or 30 wars going on out there. And we know that many people are sick, ill, and, and from one perspective, we could probably imagine that we are in some ways out of tune with the way things are supposed to be. So these are some of the topics we're going to be talking about with Oscar today. And Oscar, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Philip. It's an honor to uh, have this conversation beyond science and religion with you and explore what alternative modes of dreaming ourselves into sanity on this quite <laughs> insane world as yeah. uh, possible. Yeah, I want to talk a lot. Of, I want to talk about the this whole concept of of staying or getting back into alignment because I think that that is a key concept. But but, but first, let's set the table here. In a big picture, how would you describe what shamanism is? Well. Uh, contrary to popular belief, uh, shamanism is the world's oldest profession. It, uh, it, it emerged out of a very innate human need uh, to be an instrument of healing service to another. So it taps into the inherent dignity uh, that every human being has, 
regardless of what we see people doing and the heinous ways that they behave in this world, that eternal uh, controversy between nature and nurture uh, is really a mute point when it boils down to even in pre-literate societies, there have been revered burial rituals, revered uh, upbringing family nurturance rituals, and revered uh, relationship with the earth rituals because they stem from a human yearning of interdependence, of oneness, and of love for one's natural environment and one's human relations. Hence, um, shamanism is a, a way of living, a life way, as we call it, that honors a living soul, a conscience sentient, being within the earth and that is what we have become estranged from in our modern culture and I feel that contemporary shamanic tools are available to help people reconnect with the living pulsing earth. Well one thing that comes across so strongly in your book Lessons in Courage is this need to sort of get back to the wholeness of creation and that's something that there's no doubt that we are distant from that standpoint in today's modern world, which we are ego-driven, which we are driven to succeed sort of independently and beat, and beat the other guy and, and have the bigger house, the bigger car. And we, and we tend to forget sort of the power of the unity beyond behind creation and and so I think a natural question here is that is there a corollary of, of shamanism in 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 the US or at least in US history because it sounds it sounds like the American Indians would would be a corollary well well yes every every human grouping since time immemorial on this planet has had the equivalent of a sage, a seer, uh, a, a, uh, a mediator between the realms of spirit and the realms of the earth. And that would qualify as a shaman. And in the Americas, uh, in, in North America, Central America, and South America, uh, since the first people walked on this earth and uh, these lands, there were people that were contacted were called by a tutelary, by a spirit helper, by a unseen ally, a power ally. And we were drawn into this relationship with these visionary states of awareness that allowed them to be able to translate it to their community. And on top of that, be instruments of healing power for a series of both physical and psychological states of imbalance. And so the you know, classic archetypal witch doctor or medicine man or medicine woman that you see in the movies or depicted in an almost cartoon-like fashion uh, in popular culture is the shaman. And that shamanic person was always part of the social fabric of all the original peoples of this earth. 
Well, it's it sounds as if it, there's a corollary that I I see here. There's a book uh, by Joseph Pierce Farrell. It's called Manifesting Michelangelo, and it he's a medical doctor and he engaged in what appear to be uh, miraculous forms of healing the physical body. Uh, his healings have been videotaped. Uh, because he's a medical doctor, he gains a lot more legitimacy than perhaps others would. But one of the things that comes across in the book is that when he, when he talks about how he does it, he talks about getting in contact with the source. And I think that there's a, a, a similarity here, if not the, the exactly the same thing, because it seems to me what you're saying is that if the, if the shaman gets in touch with the unity, this unified consciousness, this oneness, that that gives him or her the power to to do something in the physical world that we might view in other perspectives as being a miracle. Very well put, exactly. That's, uh, that's the trick. And it's not an easy trick because it requires a death of the ego mind, as you mentioned before. Right. That individualism that is the offshoot of the uh, you know, industrial revolution, and, and you know, understandably so. Uh, the the urge for, for personal survival became uh, paramount uh, because of the isolation and alienation that a mechanized uh, industrial society imposed on the general populace. And so, therefore, that estrangement from that unitary state of consciousness uh, ensued. And is there on top of that the dependency by organized religion and their their uh, you know mediators uh, people forgot that they had the same ability as any priest would have to call upon the intercession of spiritual allies and forces and powers within the natural world to sustain them and to nurture them and to also allow them to experience the wholeness that is our human birthright. Hence, uh, it's time to remember these ways, to come back into membership, into true sacred relationship with all of creation. And I think that that is a message that anybody could accept and could benefit from. And I think it, it comes home to us I think, with this concept of illness. And in your book, you talk about this, and, and there's this, there's this uh, quote or there's this sentence that you have in your book that, that I, I underline, and it's, it's, it's something like, illness is equals action without alignment. And I think it's, it might be good for you to talk a little bit about this, because I think that this is something that we all could benefit from and and what I what I think is so important here is that this is not a metaphorical poetic discussion we're having here right we're talking about aligning yourself with with what is real and and pr presumably something good happens 
if you do that. Why don't you talk a little bit about illness and what you've learned from how this practice addresses illness? Certainly. Um, now, within the Kamaska curandero tradition that I had the privilege of um, having formal apprenticeship period between 1969 and 1982, uh, we have an understanding that there are two types of illness. Enfermedades de Dios, illnesses of God, and enfermedades de daño, illnesses of harm. And what differentiates both of these illnesses is very simple. The illnesses of God are karmic uh, uh, um, circumstances, situations that uh, usually uh, involve a, a physical debilitation that is very humbling to the person and requires that the person enter into a relationship with the illness to find out its reason for visiting them, to understand that once that is disclosed in your dialogue with the illness, be it cancer, multiple sclerosis, immune deficiency disorders, anything that has a systemic debilitating and sometimes mortal impact on the body requires the soul to enter into a relationship with it. It's really about opening up a conversation between you and the source, you and great spirit or creator, whatever you'd like to name it. Once that is understood, then you realize that you could request that this uninvited guest in your body because he, it's an intruder. Illness of God is seen as an opportunity to get straight with yourself and uh, the source from where you come, but at the same time, its symptoms are really an intrusion. Hence, you are able to dialogue with these symptoms and command them, basically decree them to leave, that they've overstayed their welcome in your body. And if you enter into that deep soul-infused relationship with an illness of this nature, remarkable remissions and sometimes miraculous cures have been observed and documented by many scholars around the world. Illnesses of harm, on the other hand, are the, could be considered from a Western perspective of the broad range of psycho neurotic conditions, uh, psychosomatic illnesses, anything that has to do with strong emotional or mental trauma that leaves an imprint in the, uh, in the psychological as well as affective body of, of an individual. And it also has to do with low self-esteem, uh, a sense of not feeling enough, uh, being uh, choosing victimhood rather than volunteerism when it comes to one's approach to life. And it also involves harm, which is uh, sustaining a long period of ill will from somebody else. You know, somebody who has envy or wishes you uh, to failure because they are in competition with business or something like that. If that ill will and is sustained for a long time, it does psychically impact the system, the human being. 
And those could be easily reversed and transmuted through ritual shamanic techniques and doesn't require really a dialogue by the individual uh, uh, person who is suffering and the source of that harm. This can be done for the person. And so my background is also in in, uh, Western clinical psychology and I have witnessed conditions that would take years of psychotherapy to reverse in in one evening of a misada, an all-night healing gathering in the northern coastal tradition that I apprenticed in, doing a complete release of this condition that otherwise would take medication and many years of psychotherapy to even nudge Uh, And I hope uh, you're following what I'm saying. So illness really is understood as an opportunity to deepen one's relationship with great spirit, with the source, as well as to surrender and trust somebody who understands the workings of the human mind and soul to mediate for you through these unseen worlds and free you from the type of harm that you may be exposed to. Yeah, I want to talk a little and bit more about about the methods of curing illnesses, both individually and as a planet. This is Philip Miriton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with Don Oscar Miro Quesada about his Peruvian shamanic lessons and teachings that he gives in his book lessons in courage and we're talking about how to use these teachings to address illnesses and there's probably no bigger topic in our age I think than illness right now and we could say that individuals are suffering and we could say the planet is suffering and the whole fight over Obamacare and health care and, and drug prices and cancer treatments and Alzheimer's, I mean, it's a front and center issue because everybody wants to be healthier and everybody wants to live longer and stay younger longer. And it seems to me that the only way that vision is going to be realized is if we figure out what we really are and carry forward and act per our real identity. And I think that's what you're saying, Oscar, is that it seems to me that the shamanic wisdom is, which is, which as you put earlier, put it earlier, re-remembering what we really are is, is a key to, to going in that direction. In other words, to be healthier beings, we need to get aligned with what truly is. Precisely, right. precisely, Philip. That's that's what healing is about. And by the way, your pronunciation of my Spanish name is impeccable. Wow! <laughs> wow! I, I, I'm so just going to re- I'm just going to record that and keep playing it. Okay, I'm, okay. Well, thank you. But anyways, now let's talk about let's talk about what your some personal experiences you have because your book is you know lessons in courage, and I think courage is a big topic because I've not I I believe that courage uh, 
separates the winners from the losers, or I think it's the key to success. It's the key for not only in the in the material world, but in the spiritual world. But why don't why don't you uh, give the listeners a little uh, a little piece of of your background, which is amazing, uh, about how how you really uh, became sort of immersed into the shamanic way of life, and or or what lessons you learned from your life that really told you this is the this is the right thing to do gladly uh philip and i do want to um mention to your listening audience that you know the lessons in courage is now currently number one in in uh, earth new releases of earth-based religions on amazon.com and uh number three on shamanism number one in paganism and uh and we're very, very pleased with this result. It means that many people are finding it accessible, and uh, the experiences I share in them, many of which do require that uh, living with heart, with inner strength and resolve in the world, is the only way to overcome uh, the natural uh, confrontation, because life is full of challenges and full of uh, you know, great disappointments that uh, seek to weaken us and to uh, make us feel despair and hopelessness because they are rites of passage. They are all opportunities to cross over, to move into a different experience of being that is transcendent, that is more than what our conditioned ego minds have accepted that we are as incorporated souls within a body on this good earth. Hence, the experiences that I encountered in my youth through severe illnesses as well as family dysfunctions are highlighted in the book as examples that are worldwide, that most people uh, in one way or the other have have faced in their life. And what was to my being able to transmute them, to transform them from a place of pain and suffering to a place of renewal and inspiration, and eventually to a place of wanting to share uh, my movement through that dark night of the soul into a place of service from, uh, by teaching love through who I am and, and, and my way of being in the world as a passerby. So if you are interested in some specific examples, I'll be glad to highlight a couple of them, yet they're all, as we start talking about, finding that balance, finding that alignment, uh, approaching things by simply stilling oneself first and really looking from within to the outside and realizing what am I doing to an extreme? What are my thoughts and what are my words and what are my actions that are extremist that could account for this disaster in my life? And taking an inventory of that and 
sitting with that and letting it gestate and incubate and to its full term so that you can birth a realization that your responsibility in creating the miasm or the suffering in your life is equally as powerful in reversing, to be used to reverse that suffering, that miasm, that powerlessness. And at that point, find a way of immersing yourself within the nurturance of a natural environment, of the earth, of of the living, pulsing soul of the cosmos. Yeah, you know, and the way I, I tell you, the way I look at this is is that we don't realize the power that we have inside of us and when we misuse that that power and to put it in very concrete terms when we act poorly when we don't when we don't take the correct moral action for example there is there is a payback. I mean, I'm a big believer in karma, and it's it's one of these things where it's better to live live as if karma existed than the opposite, because you never know it might be true. Uh, which is the way which is which which is the way I think about a lot of things because it's you know it's better to hedge your bets on that. But I have never heard of somebody that lived a fairy tale story. Even the people in the fairy tales have problems. I mean, whether it's romance, whether someone in their family dies, whether they get left pettiless somewhere. I mean, look at Cinderella. I mean, they're all, there's something bad that happens to everybody. And what you say in your book, and I think that, you know, others have said it, but I think you're, it's, it's very powerful the way you, you articulate it, is that it's, when, when, when you get sick or when something bad happens, it's time to learn from it. And it, but it takes courage to pull yourself out. And this is part of the, the big life lesson in, in, my, in my estimation, that we, we go up, you know, we go through these ups and downs, and it really is the courage you know, to pull yourself out. Now I, I happen to think, while we're on the courage topic, that it also takes courage to have a conversation like this and to and to dwell and to contemplate broader concepts than simply taking another pill or or going to um, a psychiatrist or something I mean there there it takes courage to try something different but in terms of your your own experiences one of the things that seemed to be very powerful that maybe you could just talk about a little bit is is the near-death experience you had and I believe that was when you were uh, driving the car or not driving the car well yeah <laughs> uh, I've had three near-death experiences okay. one at, an, at a year and a half uh, one at 10 and one at 33 and the one you're referring to in the car is at 33 Yet, before I go into that, may sure. I share something that's not in the book sure. that I think would, that I feel would be a, a lesson in courage sure. for your listening audience? Uh, right. And it's a concrete experience that occurred to me when I was four years old. Um, 
I'm the result of my mother's third marriage and my father's second marriage. So I had uh, an interesting, uh, you know, sibling situation. And uh, one of my half-brothers, who uh, together with his fraternal twin and, and his younger sister, unfortunately had to be placed in an orphanage during a very difficult period of my mother's early life before she met my father, and uh, experienced some horrible things in this orphanage. So when they, my father adopted them and they all came in to live at the home, this brother of mine sodomized me when I was four years old. And, you know, throughout my life, I lived with a, that experience of, of uh, you know, being violated and betrayed because I loved them and I still loved them after that event, but I respect them highly. And so I was, I felt unfinished, I felt raw and, 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 and wounded as a result of this and needed to go ahead and speak to my brother about it and get straight and forgive him. So when I completed my undergraduate, the first thing I, I set out to do is go and, and, and sit down and break bread with my brother and talk about this. And he was living way up in the northeast region of Vermont, near the Canadian border, making violins and mandolins and living with his family there in a very isolated area. And I showed up with a basket of food and said, I'm here, I know you guys are struggling, here's some some food, let's break bread together. And over a few days, I opened up the space to talk about the experience, openly, honestly. Uh, and and therefore was able to come into a place of resonance, a place of of relationship that did not involve victim or victimizer, that did not involve being the one that was angry and being the one that needed to defend themselves, but a place of total vulnerable defenselessness. And I was able to reframe that early trauma into an opportunity to grow into a rite of passage, into an initiation, into a level of forgiveness that has served me ever since when somebody, for some reason or another, violates my own integrity, my own path on this earth in a way that is uncalled for. And I can still open my heart to unconditional love for them. So this is an example of one of the ways that I feel through dialogue, open, honest, vulnerable dialogue, we can reverse a lot of the traumatic situations that we hold on to and harbor that really are toxic, not only in our own lives, but in the field that we put out into the world. Yeah, that is such a, so, that is such a important point that you're making, and I, I want to emphasize that, that, uh, you know, from my own experience one of the good things about getting older is that you realize that people do change and harboring resentment hatred revenge it's just not a good thing and and it takes courage to do it that way and I think what it teaches me is that people change with time and we tend to you know forget that circumstances uh, really control behavior a lot 
and and when you confront somebody with anger a year or two five years later things are a lot different and I, I wish that we could learn that lesson more uh, you know in in the troubled areas of of our society but there's always hope this is Philip Merton this is conversations beyond science and religion we're speaking with Don Oscar Miro Quesada about lessons in courage and I'd like to turn to one of the most interesting parts of your book which is the Pachacuti Mesa or the great world turning and I just love that concept the great world turning and apparently we are in the midst of it or 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 in the in the uh, on the cusp of it is that true what what is the great world turning oh well um and we'll go back to the near-death experience at age 33 in the car in a, in a moment because I, it all ties in. I may jump around, but That's I okay. do weave it together at the end. That's so, fine. So thank you for bearing with me. Um, but this is an important uh, notion that you are bringing up here. Um, Pacha Kuti, Pacha in Quechua, or the Highland uh, dialect of the ancestral peoples of the Andes, uh, Pacha means world, time, space, place, earth, or, or state of consciousness, much like the notion of bardo in Tibetan Buddhism is uh, a, 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 place, a state of consciousness, Pacha. And Kuti means reversal, change, transformation. So Pacha Kuti means world reversal or cosmic transformation. And every culture, Every ancestral wisdom tradition on this planet speaks of these world eras, of these cosmic cycles, of these beginnings and these endings, of this constant churning out of death, birth, renewal, and transcendence. And throughout the world there are parallels that we are now at the end of the Iron Age. In Hinduism or Vedanta, it's known as the Kali Yuga. In, in Peru, we understand it as the Auka Pacha, or the Iron Age also, the age of chaos, of, of dissonance, of uh, breaking apart, of separation. And soon we will, according to the equinoxial procession, which allows for the axis of our planet to progressively move in alignment with the galactic center to another horizon in the zodiac, we are completing that procession, that 25,920-year cycle, which, you know, the Mayan prophecies and the birth 2012 situation and all that has highlighted. Yet in our Andean understanding, Pachacuti is an opportunity to engage the unseen and seen powers and forces of the universe, especially of our own galaxy. And through certain ritual and ceremonial practices, such as what the Pachacuti Mesa shamanic lineage was developed for, align ourselves with these changes draw on their potential to reduce the destructive impact 
of the dissonance that is being created by the confusion and toxicity of the mind, because I consider the pollution of the mind a more critical problem than the pollution of the environment. Yeah, yeah I would agree so, with that. So, yeah, yeah. so basically the Pachacuti Mesa is an altar ground in which one can ritually arrange a symmetry, a balance, an equilibrium of powers and forces that are familiar to the shamanic aspirant and to the adept. And hence, through one's own attainment of balance, of that power, influence the outside world, your relationships with family, friends, community, region, nation, and planet, and eventually be in sacred alignment with the great spiral of creation known as the dreaming of the one source. So, so is this something that happens naturally? Is this, is this, or is this something that uh, humans can accelerate? Well, it all depends on the worldview that you ascribe to, Philip, as you well know. You know, in, in, in hyperspace realms, temporality and spatiality really are, are a subjective experience, you know, in, in non-local space, time and space. So, yeah, when you, when, if, if you choose to, to slow things down or speed things up, you have to be outside of this three-dimensional experience we call Earth, you know? Right. So it needs to be done from a place of causality uh, known as the causal plane or the mental plane in which you, um, you, you plant a seed of a certain outcome and then you nurture that planting of the seed with certain concrete actions in your life that are meant to simplify and to open up space and to expand time. Yet, it's work. Right. Nothing is a free lunch in this good universe. Right. You know? right. It's all about balance. It, right. And it takes a lot of... Uh, that's why the esoteric and great mystery schools and all of the very advanced techniques of of magic uh, required initiation, lifelong initiation, and especially the shamanic arts to understand how to work in these alternate realms uh, and and be able to influence in a constructive way this this physical realm. I hope I'm not speaking too too far out there. Well, I think that it it fits together because. The logical conclusion to the principle that we need to get aligned with what is real, and if we define what is real as something uh, as maybe generic as the unified consciousness or the source or God or the one mind, there's all sorts of terms we could use. I think you use the word "great originating mystery," which is perhaps something else. But if, but if the goal it's is the to same get, thing, that's right, exactly okay. it. If, continuous thing. If if you if the goal is to get yourself aligned, and there's there's a problem with that because the problem is is that 
is that we just said to get yourself aligned with with the all is one with with the oneness of the world well if you're the only one getting yourself in line it's not gonna work very well it might work for you for a while but it takes a great world turning it takes as I I put it it takes at least a critical mass to get the wheel turning and and so to me the vision is is where the, where uh, humans evolve using that term loosely to to become in tune as a planet with the unity of the world I mean and, and I think that that is something that is extremely exciting and and that that happens to be what my own book is about the heaven at the end of science and because and I, I do it in a different direction but it seems to me that that particular vision is really the dream that we all have some people I think transport that dream to an afterlife to another world which is fine if someone wants to take the chance that that's where it's going to happen or if there's no other choice that's fine but as I said earlier it seems to me to be worth the bet that we could do it here and if not maybe 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 we'll get it done in another realm another dimension <laughs> but but that's the way I look at it. it I think it's extremely exciting and I'm also happy that we are in the midst of the great world turning Mm -hmm. so. And that's a term coined by Joanna Macy, as you well know, that is much more um, focused on the ecological turning that we're yeah. experiencing. Yet, you've encapsulated it brilliantly, and, and the, the title of your book is also, I find, uh, quite inspirational in terms of its double entendre, uh, because really it is a passing through uh, into a heavenly realm that that we're talking about, and on this earth, um, and regardless of there being seven billion souls on this good planet, and it seems like things are are just falling apart even more rapidly, uh, you mentioned the notion of critical mass, of a field of morphogenic resonance, a field of harmony and unified dreaming of what is possible, a shared vision of cooperative, peaceful, planetary presence for humankind that if sustained sufficiently by like-hearted, two-legged humans on this planet will maintain that passing through and the manifestation of heaven on earth. And that's the extraordinary value of contemporary shamanic lifeway. And the Pachakuti Mesa tradition focuses on the creation and sustenance of sacred earth-honoring communities that come together and do rituals, pilgrimages to venerated places of power, to sacred landscape shrines, and together, through the use of breath, of sound, of movement, and of stillness generate this field of resonance, this critical mass that 
if you understand the ways of nature, any species that comes together in a totality of purpose always survives the breakdown of the environment around it. And hence, that communal sense of spiritual service and the love of the earth is fundamental for us to navigate these troubled times and be a participant in the great turning good. So instead of a catastrophe, it'll become benestrophe, which is a turning good. I think that's very I think that's very well put and I want to sort of link here with something that comes up on this show a lot and there and th that is this concept called science and proof and I think to me the real powerful part of this is that when more people start realizing that there is that there are benefits to their lives whether it's by practicing shamanism or whether it's by being more in touch with their spirit or by looking inside or by taking a more holistic approach when they start seeing uh, concrete results when that illness is healed faster when when cancer is in remission when when you stay younger longer when these things actually start happening that that to me will be the great turning uh, uh, Oscar, that's that's what I, I think it takes. It's going to take concrete results in the here and now, because the the show me folks, the people from Missouri, who want to see the proof. Once once those folks are convinced, then I think we have, and I hate to use it, but then we have the tipping point. This is Philip Mirton. This is conversations beyond science and religion. We're speaking with Don Oscar Miro Quesada about lessons in courage, and I we've talked about a lot of about a lot of big topics, and I but I, I wanted to do that because I think the Great World Turning is a amazing. It's I think it's inspirational, but I didn't let you talk about your near death experience. So <laughs> so I think that most people well, I think it's very inter I think it's very interesting and and. It's something that is sort of fascinating. Why don't you talk about just a little bit here about your near-death experience certainly, or one of them? Certainly. Well, you know, the Great Turning is is all is, has a lot to do with scale, and so a near-death experience on an individual scale is really a mirror of the near-death experience our planet is going through, hmm. and hence and and hence. Uh, you know the the the, the amount of near death experiences or other types of non ordinary encounters with uh, with dimensions or or experiences of being that once were considered ludicrous are now gaining uh, you know legitimacy within mainstream consciousness so as you say, you know, the people in, the, in in middle America really need that corn and potatoes, that proof, that concrete physical experience to to be able to shift. 
Yet, you know, the great master teacher on the Sermon of the Mount said the first will be last and the last will be first. Yeah. So we all get there eventually. And in the, in the cosmic scale of things, it's, the important thing is to wake up to a path of loving service to one another. And the near-death experiences that myself and many other people have had are portals to that place of surrender. Because there's nothing more frightening than the unknown to us humans that are still craving control and approval. Yeah. And so when, a, when something happens in which you are, you know, there's no way you can deny that you've crossed over and you're in a, on the other side of the veil, it's like, what now, you know? Yes. So... Yes, my near-death experience at, at 33 years old resulted uh, from a, 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 an accumulation of many, many poor decisions and also of a crisis of, of faith. I had lost my connection because and, and, uh, I really wasn't good at believing ever in a creating source or in the great originating mystery. I'm the type of person that either I experience God or I don't have any need to believe in something. And my experience of God has always been a, 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 an unlimited field of loving, compassive heartbeat, <laughs> if I may say. Yes. So it's a pulsing. It's a state of grace. And I feel it coursing through my entire being and every fiber of my being and I am free from the mind I am free from from thought and I am in a state of blissful presence and that to me is what God is God is not a person or a being that takes sides or is that interested in what happens on earth the truth. This is my own opinion. I'm not speaking for anybody else. It's an impersonal state of perfect, harmonious, resonant, loving presence. And, and, and so when I had my near-death experience, I had been going through a series of events in my life that were the opposite of that experience. And so I didn't want to be around anymore, I'll be honest with you, Philip. And, yeah. uh, and uh, in a state of intense uh, intoxication, and people can read about this in the book, it's you know, expressed very honestly and candidly, I took my car out for a drive down by the coastal area of Lima, Peru, the capital of Peru, and crying uh, hysterically in a crisis of, of, of faith and, and totally fed up with who I was and, and, and the world itself, and took my hands off the steering wheel and just, you know, floored at the gas pump, and the car began driving itself. And it's a long story, but right. uh, I came up to the top of the cliff, and just before I was going off the cliff, I blacked out. Uh, I heard my, I heard screams, and then you know was kind of aware of being still in my body, and felt 
my wallet and my watch and everything in my car being stolen. The conditions were rather uh, uh, difficult in Peru at the time due to the military coup and the curfew out, so I could have been shot on the spot for being out at that time of the night. And I found myself in this neighborhood. My car was totally wrecked. The neighborhood was like three streets over from where I had headed toward this uh, drop off the cliff, and there were these. It was brightly lit, and there were these children playing with a beach ball. That every time I felt fear, they would stop playing and stop laughing and giggling. And every time I opened myself to surrender and embrace of the beauty of that laughter and that childlike innocence, they would start to play again and laugh even louder and have a, a, a great time. So I realized that my internal experiences were molding the outside world. And at that point, this very unlikely character call it an archangel or whatever you want to call it, but it was this really, he looked like a, a, a Peruvian Hispanic <laughs> version of a James Dean with an STP <laughs> label on his jacket. Yeah. Comes cruising down to me, you know, with his, his shades on and starts to telepathically communicate all these extraordinary things to me. And and I, I flat out asked him, I'm dead, aren't I? And he said, yes, you are. What do you think's going on here, you know? Yeah. And I'm, trying, I'm you know, laughing because in retrospect, it's very comedic, but at the time, it was far from being a comedy, yes. you can imagine. And so I, he proceeded to quiz me, basically, on my positions and my experience uh, about uh, spiritual reality and then asked me to get back into the car and uh, start breathing deeply, and I went back out, and at that point went out through this typical tunnel of light, uh, you know, the good old life review, that whole classic thing, and, uh, and then uh, saw, it was given an option. I saw what my parents who had just lost their oldest son, who I inherited the car from, from cancer, they were destroyed because of my death. I'm the youngest. And then I saw my daughter, who was in the United States at the time, bereft of a father and what her life would be like. And seeing the suffering of both my parents and my daughter uh, made me choose not to continue my journey into the more blissful realms of, of, of heaven, if we right. call it that. And I came back in with a jolt into my body, and I felt the pain of the accident, and the police came, picked me up, and took me away. And, uh, and I realized at that time that I had, after a while, because it took me a few months to try to reintegrate the experience, because as a result of that, life became very bizarre, because I still was trying to figure out everything, and... and and basically bust God, you know, call him on his trickery. Right. <laughs> and so the, the, the I was stuck in this ego thing of, you know, wanting to arts, outsmart the great originating mystery. And until I woke up one day and said, well, whether I'm dead or alive, I still have to get up to go to work. <laughs> At that moment, boom, yes. everything 
simplify. Chop yes. wood and carry water, basically. Yeah, yeah that's a, yeah, that's that an amazing. Yeah, that's an amazing. That's an amazing story. And you know, it's it would be, it's a kind of thing that would be. Well, that sounds unbelievable. Except it has so much in common with other near-death accounts. And as you as you said earlier, and as we've discussed on this show, if there is this spiritual field that we are subsisting in, then then this near death experience sort of sort of flashes or sort of snaps you into another phase of it or something, and and it it makes it makes sense. It explains a lot. But but what a powerful experience that must have been, and and it's really you know I thank you I thank you for sharing that I I wanted to to ask you before we close here that a lot of folks probably think okay well there's there's religion and then, and then there's science and spirituality is the same thing as religion. Uh, but you you have a different perspective that I think it's it's important for you to share, where you don't equate spirituality and religion, right? Those are two separate things for you. Well, uh, very very different. Yes, uh, religion is uh, is an org is an organized um, attempt to to. Uh, how can I say this? Uh, to manage one's return to the source, okay. and by other people, so it takes the power out of the individual to find their own relationship with Creator, with the Great Originating Mystery. And people are lazy, and they turn over their power very easily, especially to these ex- incredibly elaborate embellished churches and, and, and temples and, 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 you know, theocratic uh, establishments throughout the ages that were built so grandiose to show their superiority over the regular person. And therefore it became a political drama Religion basically is nothing more, in my opinion, than uh, politics with a robe. <laughs> you know what yes. I mean? Yes. <laughs> I'm, yeah. And I, and I, if I'm insulting some of your listening audience, I do apologize, but I must speak my truth. Spirituality, on the other hand, to me, is a very personal uh, experience of one's unlimited potential as a as a soul. As a, as, as a fully developed conscious being that can dream beyond what we are conditioned by in the status quo, that understands that consensus reality is just that. It's an agreed-upon worldview that you can buy into or not. Somebody who is awake to that realization is living a spiritual life. That's how I would define it. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I think that's very. That's very well put. And I think that, you know, in this day and age, we're seeing more and more people, sort of explore this concept of spirituality themselves. And I always say that if you find out 
that at the end of the day, organized religion is the way to go, then that's a, that's a decision that you've made. I, I think that the same thing applies to science, by the way. I think that folks should uh, evaluate scientific theories just like the belief systems of religion. You know, last week we had Jim Baggin on the show, a much different conversation. We talked about farewell to reality, about how many scientific theories are becoming disconnected with reality. And not only that, I might add, they're becoming more and more incomprehensible. But one of the things we ended that show with, or what I ended that show with, which at the end of his book, he talked about how we all need to come to our own conclusions. But I, I do think that there is an uprising of spirituality in our world. I do think that uh, I'm optimistic that there is a great world turning in our midst. Uh, it, uh, the, the odds are that it, that it is going to happen. And I'm, I'm very much encouraged, uh, Oscar, that you have given us your lessons in your book and and shown us the way of shamanism which is available to anybody we didn't have time to talk about all the practical tips you have in your book and folks could pick it up um, to read through those those uh, bits of practical wisdom and practical advice it's not only a memoir but as I think as you say it's also a guide for living so I want to thank you for your time. It's gone fast. Uh, you might want to just talk a little bit about uh, what what you're doing next, and if folks want to find out more about what you're doing, how they get in touch with you or, or find out about uh, Thank you, Philip. Uh, yes, the best way to do this, just for time's sake, is to visit www.heartofthehealer.org. That's Heart of the Healer one word, dot org. There you'll see the uh, the alliance that we have created to be able to disseminate the Pachacuti Mesa tradition teachings as a, uh, as a tool, as an adjunct to one's own spiritual path uh, and also to establish uh, belongingness within a sacred earth-centered community www.heartofthehealer.org and of course if you purchase Lessons in Courage Peruvian Shamanic Wisdom for Everyday Life from Amazon.com or any other bookseller you'll be helping the uh, outreach work and the rainforest uh, uh, sanctuary initiatives that the Heart of the Healer Alliance is, is providing as well and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share that my good brother Philip. Well thanks a whole lot Don Oscar. It's, it's been great talking to you. This is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Merton. To find out more about Philip and his new book The Heaven at the End of Science visit heavenattheendofscience.com 